Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Why are you the way you are? How much of what you've become was written in your genes and how much came from elsewhere? Where and what are the sources of influence that helped make you the person you are now? Today's guest has spent a lifetime searching for the answers to these deep questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're delighted to have Robert Plowman on the show today to talk about his new book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. Robert Plowman is a world-leading research psychologist and geneticist, best known for his groundbreaking work with twin studies. He's a professor of behavioral genetics at King's College London and deputy director of the Social, Genetic, and Developmental Psychiatry Center at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and neuroscience. Robert Plowman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Renee. And you've been working at the cutting edge of behavioral genetics ever since you say you fell in love with genetics when you were in graduate school in psychology. What did you and what do you love about the study of genetics? Well, when I was in graduate school, and, and this story is relevant to one of the substantive points I want to make, that is the environment's important, but it works mostly in an unsystematic, idiosyncratic, chance sort of way. So here's m- one of my many examples of that. I, was, I grew up in inner city Chicago, and no one in my family went to university. And I fortunately had a great advisor at DePaul University where I studied psychology. And he said, you ought to go to graduate school. I didn't even know what graduate school was. I honestly didn't. And he helped me fill out these applications. And in January, long before you're supposed to get this notification, I got notification from uh, one of the psychology professors at Austin, Texas, saying, you, we'd like to have you come and we'll pay for everything and we'll give you a stipend too. So being an inner city Chicago boy, I thought, wow, that's quite a deal. So I went there, you know, knowing I sort of wanted to go on in psychology, but I had no idea of what they offered in particular. And what they did offer is one of these compulsory courses They called them core courses back then that all graduate students had to take. So there's 40 graduate students a year accepted into psychology. They all take perception and clinical and a course in behavioral genetics. It was the only place in the world at that time that offered behavioral genetics. And here's where the chance comes in. You know, I didn't know that that was part of the course, but I just, it was jaw dropping for me. I just totally loved it because I was at a point in my second year of uh, graduate school, it's called the second year slump, where, you know, you're first in the first year excited, you're learning lots of new things. And then you start wondering, what is this all about? I mean, where, where are the big findings? What am I going to really do? And what struck me about behavioral genetics was first that I had never heard about it in all my courses in psychology. This is back in the 70s when psychology was so dominated by environmentalism, genetics never got mentioned even. So it was, it was so new and exciting. And then I could see that it was very powerful. 
we weren't just talking about statistically significant findings that, you know, that are really quite small effects, which is what most psychology findings are. These were really big findings. It was back then mostly animal studies, but there were the beginnings of um, twin and adoption studies for humans that suggested that genetic influences accounted for perhaps half of the differences between people. And in psychology, we really explained 5%. So that thrilled me. And the, the chance bit of this, though, was that the 39 other students in that course, not one of them went on to do anything in behavioral genetics. So I really do not understand how, why it is, I just knew from that moment that's what I wanted to do, whereas none of the other students became interested in it. And I find when I talk to people, I don't know about you, Renee, but when I talk to people about how their life happened, you know, we can always make stories when we look back. But if people, people often say that it's these sort of sliding door chance events that tip them in one direction or another. And this particular event, me deciding to become a behavioral geneticist, you know, transform the rest of my life. And here I am 40 years later, you know, still very excited about the topic. So that's how I got into it. And that's why I was excited about it. And then there's the story of what's happened in the subsequent 40 years, but we can come on to that perhaps later. Well, I'm glad you fell in love with it because your research is so important and it challenged conventional assumptions about how human beings develop. Um, there was a time, and I think in some quarters still today, there's talk about the nature-nurture controversy. Uh, but we know, in large part because of your work, that nature uh, genetics are involved in the things we once thought of as entirely environmental, uh, such as the quality of parenting, social support, even life events. Tell us how that works. Okay, well, on the first point that you made, though, I think it is very important to see how much psychology has changed over these 40 years. When I was in graduate school in the, in the early 70s, 1970s, you can, um, <laughs> you can uh, see that the textbook said schizophrenia was caused by what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. It, yeah. Without considering genetics, and we now know that schizophrenia has a strong genetic component. It's not all genetic, but to have ignored that genetic influence meant that a lot of research we did was confounded. So if you showed, for example, that, um, uh, say, if, if parents have some psych psychopathology and they also have kids who have psychopathology, you could assume that what runs in families is nurture. You know, from Freud onwards, you, it, it, socialization and parenting was considered to be the major environmental influences. And that's that wasn't... Um, dumb. I mean, you know, it's a reasonable hypothesis, but they never took into it. They never considered the possibility that parents and offspring share 50% of their, there's 50% similar genetically. So maybe that's accounting for this resemblance. And that's where twin and adoption studies, I think, over these 40 years have convinced most psychologists, most behavioral science scientists as a whole, that genetics is very important. And what interests me is that we've gone from not considering genetics to the point where the challenge now is to find any reliably measured trait in psychology that does not show significant genetic influence when you study it in a sufficiently powered study that is with a big enough sample size. So it's been a really dramatic um, 
transformation, I think, of psychology. And although there are still critics and people who are concerned about it, I think the DNA revolution, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, which is beginning to make it possible to predict psychological traits from DNA alone, that is really kind of the um, culmination of this uh, transformation, because you can argue with twin and adoption studies, but it's very hard to argue uh, with DNA. Are twin and adoption studies still the two models that are most powerful in the field? Yes. Well, twin studies have been going on for over 100 years and adoption studies almost as long, and they are very powerful demonstrations of genetic influence. However, now that we know just about everything is heritable, that is substantially influenced by inherited DNA differences, it's sort of less interesting to say, well, what about this trait? I mean, a trait that hasn't been studied much, say like musical ability. It's um, not very interesting just to ask, is something heritable? Because everything's heritable. I mean, the weird thing is that the the heritabilities in psychology are on average about 50%. That means 50% of the differences between people are due to inherited DNA differences. And that range is only like 30% to 60 or 70%. You know, so everything is heritable. Now you can do a lot more with twin and adoption studies, which is what I've done over the last three decades, not just showing something's heritable, but instead asking new questions like developmental questions. How does genetic influence unfold during development? And another big set of questions is about the interplay between genes and environment. To what extent do genetic effects interact with the environment or correlate with the environment? And then another big area of research is one you alluded to before, and that started with finding measures of the environment that we use in psychology. I think you measured, mentioned stress and parenting. These are, and I did, I did a study on television viewing. These are things you think of in psychology as environmental influences. But are they? They involve behavior. And if all behavior shows genetic influence, then these environmental measures could also show genetic influence. And indeed they do. On average, the, the measures of environment we use in psychology across all these diverse sorts of measures are about 25% heritable. That's only half as much as behavioral traits, but still that's a lot of the variance of these so-called environmental measures can be ascribed to inherited DNA differences, genetics. And so that means, and this is the uh, important take-home message, is that we all know correlations do not imply causation. But give a psychologist a correlation between some parenting measure and some outcome in the child, like parents who read a lot to their kids have kids who do better at reading in school, and psychologists almost can't help interpreting that causally. Reading to children causes children to read better at school. And I just hope people will... uh, from my book, at, at least, get the genetic message that they share 50% of their genes. Perhaps it's possible that parents who like reading, have lots of books, encourage their child to read, have children who are better at reading for genetic reasons rather than for environmental reasons. And the other offshoot of this that I find really... Sorry, okay, please. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Well, just to finish this, I'm sorry I'm rambling on so long here, but you can see no, I'm, you're doing, I'm, I'm you're doing great. excited about all these things because these are really big findings, and they only came about because we thought of uh, environmental influences in a genetically sensitive design. And when you do that, you find not only is there genetic influence on environmental measures like parenting, where the genetic influence comes from the parents' genes, but also from their responding to their child and genetically driven factors there. And so I hope it doesn't sound unreasonable to say that we need to think about these correlations between parenting and children's outcomes as being mediated about 50% by genetic factors. So I know that's a lot to take on board, but um, my book describes these things in great detail. And that topic is called Nature of Nurture, and I have a chapter on that. Right. I, I love that phrase. And, and, and another one, which is even more poetic, uh, where you say, we use the environment to get what our DNA blueprint whispers that it wants. Uh, you're to, like you're, that. I stole that I actually from a novel, Kate Atkinson's book, Behind the Scenes at the Museum. So I'll acknowledge uh, that openly now. <laughs> but I did love the okay. idea of that's the way genes work. And it's a very important phrase the whispering. It's a nudge. It's not the way people learn about genetics from Mendel and his pea plants, which involves single gene, basically disorders in the pea plant. And when you learn about genetics from that single gene perspective, you think about genes as deterministic and hardwired. And they really are if you're talking about a single gene mutation that causes a particular outcome. Like if you're a pea seed and you have that mutation for wrinkled pea seeds, you will have wrinkled pea seeds no matter what environment you grow up in. So um, with humans, there are thousands, some people say seven, 10,000 single gene disorders that are necessary and sufficient for the development of the disorder. So if you have the mutation for Huntington's disease, which is on the tip of chromosome four, you'll die from Huntington's disease. It's a neurodegenerative disorder that um, takes a decade or so to kill people, but you will die from that regardless of your environment. So that's the way people think about genetics. But the thing is in psychology and most of medicine, we're not talking about single gene disorders. They're very rare. So they're dramatic and important for people who have them. But in the population as a whole, our psychological and medical burden in society comes from common disorders and quantitative traits. So for these, what we've learned from molecular genetics in the last decade is we're talking about many, many genes of small effect. And we'll come on to that. That's the topic of polygenic scores. But the real point here is it makes it a completely different sort of genetics. It's not deterministic and hardwired like single gene effects. It becomes probabilistic. So probabilistic propensities, not pre-programmed, uh, hardwired determinism. So I think that phrase of whispers or nudges, I think is really important for people to keep in mind. Genes don't, genetic influence doesn't like... Um, in the book, I talk about uh, my high genetic score for obesity. And it, I think people can understand that, um, well, first, they might not know that uh, 
individual differences in body mass index are highly heritable, maybe 70% heritable. A lot of people think, you know, it's mostly environmental. And, you know, because I have this high polygenic score, um, people might say, well, it's just determined, you know, you're going to be fat. Well, not at all. I mean, clearly everybody knows if I stopped eating, if I weren't such a pig, when I'm at the table with lots of good food around, I would lose weight. But the thing is, in the real world, in our fast food nation where food is blaring and if I walk past the bakery, my mouth is watering just talking about this, <laughs> you, you know, the smells of the bakery, you know, I just, I, I would get a loaf of bread and if it's still warm, I probably eat the whole thing, you know, just because um, and you could say I don't have self-control or whatever, but that's the way genetics works. It doesn't make, you know, it's not a gene, a puppeteer pulling my strings, making me walk into that bakery shop and buy something, a pastry or something, and gobble it down. It's just these nudges. But that's the way life works, I think. You know, there's cafeteria of experiences, and we just have a tendency towards some of those more than others. So whispers is a very important idea, as well as being a kind of a poetic way of expressing it. Well, I'm glad you brought up that uh, obesity uh, issue. I think a lot of listeners will be interested uh, in that. Uh, but since it's behavioral genetics, besides the fact that you're, you inherited a metabolism inclination that will gain weight instead of your cousin Joe, who can eat as much as he wants and doesn't ever seem to gain a pound, uh, Aren't uh, your genetics whispering to you to eat that whole box of donuts? Yeah. Or to, yep. to so it's harder to well, exercise self-control when your genes are prompting you in another direction. Yes, Would that be that's true? That's such a good point. And it, it, you know, it, it raises several important issues. I mean, one is about tolerance, for example. I mean, I agree completely. We need to recognize that there are these genetic differences between people and skinny people just don't get it. I mean, I can tell them, look, you know, <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm, I'm glad by your chuckling that you seem to be in my club a bit more, right? I'm afraid so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in psychology, we talk about two major processes involved and it isn't just, it's not just physiological, you know, like um, hormonal or metabolic, which is what people normally think about probably more important in this genetic propensity are these two types of processes we call sensitivity to food cues, which is me passing the bakery, and I'm just in, in, grabbed by the smells of the fresh bakery stuff. I'm not going to be able to talk because I'll be starting to drool pretty soon. <laughs> but the other is satiety, which for me seems to be even more important. That's the sense of feeling full. You know, I'm having dinner with a bunch of people and I say I'm full. They're all full. There's still food on the table. We keep talking. Before you know it, the food's all gone. Right. Because, you know, I, you know, I don't know what it is. I'm full, but um, I just, it's just good food. And I don't know, hate seeing it going to waste. It. It's just, I just love it so much, you know, that I just eat it. So I think um, that's the way the genetics works, you know, and it doesn't. And as I said before, the point is, I, I can lose weight, but, um, and, but it's just harder for me. And it's easier for me to put on the pounds. And I think 
that sort of tolerance of others, you know, you skinny people out there ought to be a, have a little bit more compassion for us genetic fatties. I mean, that's one thing, <laughs> but also to have more tolerance for ourselves. I mean, to, for me, this was really important to realize that I've got a lifelong battle of the bulge. You know, it isn't just the six pounds I put on at the last holiday season or whatever. I've, it's, it's a constant battle. And I've got to watch my weight and I have to engineer my environment to accommodate this. You know, I just can't have junk food around because with the best of intentions, some night when I'm tired or not feeling so well or something, I just kind of give in and it's screaming at me from the cupboard. So, you know, I don't just have one crisp or two, you know, I eat the whole bag. So, I, right. I, you know, I think right. tolerance is an important message that comes from genetics and people don't often recognize that. Um, so we could talk some more about that later, but um, I'm sorry I'm babbling when, on here so much, but I do enjoy you, talking to you about this, Renee. When you, uh, when you uh, write about that, that chapter about the, the DNA whispering, um, you bring down a very interesting Swedish study of stressful life events and uh, things that would seem to be absolutely not genetically influenced at all. For example, whether or not you decide to get a divorce. Uh, but the Swedes found that even in divorce and other issues like that, there is a genetic influence. Explain that, please. Yes, well, I'm glad you appreciate that too. That's, that's a, another aspect of the nature of nurture. In psychology, we call certain measures environmental measures. And, you know, you assume they just can't have genetic influence because they're environmental measures. But are they? We rarely measure the environment out there independent of us. Measures of life stress, social support, even divorce involve our behavior. They don't just happen to us. So it's a really important point that if these are measures, the way the genetics works on divorce and life events and social support is that it's us interacting with the environment. It's not the environment happening to us. It's the experience in, in our heads in a way. That is, to some extent, we select our environments, we create them. So if you think of divorce, for example, which is really tough for people to take. But the Swedish study is very impressive. And there's a number of other studies as well, twin studies. The Swedish study was an adoption study showing that kids who have parents who divorce are more likely to be divorced themselves. And, you know, perfectly reasonable to think that that's environmental. You know, your parents model conflicted relationships and that might mess you up as a child. And then you go on to be more likely to become divorced. But again, correlation does not imply causation. Could it be genetic? And the answer is it seems to be substantially genetic because your risk, if you had been adopted away from your parents at birth, your risk of being divorced if those biological parents divorced is just as great as the risk if you grew up with your own uh, biological parents. So it suggests growing up with people who get divorced doesn't in itself increase risk. It's the genetic resemblance. And then we've done further studies that ask, well, what is it? What's, what, where does the genetics come from? And if you think about it, well, who gets divorced? 
it's it's not just a random event that happens to us haplessly. We don't, we don't we're not just bystanders here. I've been divorced. Well, I, I've, I'm on my third marriage. One was a death, and one was a divorce. So I know of where I speak. That um, I think uh, what what personality traits might be involved, and I'm kind of pleased to see that the. The research suggests that the things that make you more likely to get divorced are the things that probably made you more attractive in the first place. And that's things like joie de vivre and maybe impulsivity, sensation seeking, novelty preference. These are hmm. things that that contributes about half of the genetic influence, personality traits like that. So it just leads to so many interesting questions. Um, the one I got into trouble with first was television viewing in the early 1980s when we first started finding genetic influence on environmental measures. I can honestly say the way we found this first was we sort of found it by mistake. We were analyzing adoption data on behavioral traits, and I just happened to put in an environmental measure, and it showed genetic influence. And I said, whoa, how can that be? You know, it had to do with parenting and um, uh, sort of the cognitive development of children. And then, you know, after you think about it for a minute, you realize it isn't the environment out there. It involves people's behavior and all behavior shows genetic influence. So one, uh, if I can give one more example of that, it's uh, Please. yeah, going back to the, the, the single item in, in all these measures of the home environment that correlates most with school achievement is number of books in the home. It shows genetic influence, number of books in the home. And hmm. you say, how can that be? Because books don't have DNA. But with a little bit of reflection, you realize, well, the books don't get there by themselves. Some parents have a lot more books than other parent, parents. So isn't it possible there are genetic influences on that? How much people like to read, how much they value education, maybe how bright they are. And that then could be genetically related to the children. So it isn't the number of books causing the kids better school achievement. It's, it's mediated genetically. And this is so important because when I first came to England um, 25 years ago, there was what they call a white paper. It's a government policy announcement. This is what they want to do. They recognize the correlation between books in the home and children's educational output. And what they really were proposing to do was to just have a lot of books delivered to the homes of less achieving children or families that are likely to have children who are less achieving and just sort of dump them on the doorstep, implying that all it is is the number of books. So you put a lot of books in the home and the kids are going to do better. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's nuts, right? But um, yeah. um, that, that was before people considered the possibility of genetics. So once you start thinking about genetics, you know, it, it just opens your eyes to a lot of other topics. Like now, I think the challenge is to think of an environmental measure that does not show genetic influence. And one that you can come up with is the weather. If I asked you, what's the weather like in Jerusalem today? You know, you could, you could de right. describe it and I could, you could say, well, that can't possibly show genetic influence. It, it sounds like if you tried to think of that as a, a, a measure of psychological ex, uh, 
experience, you'd say it's probably a psychoticism scale. I mean, you know, you sort of have to be nuts to think you can control the weather. <laughs> right. But it does show genetic influence. And the reason for that is, again, the weather, even the weather, is not just something out there that happens to us. It involves your perceptions. And, and, and there's another way in which genetic influence enters in. But it just take perceptions. I'm this... I'm always wearing rose-colored glasses, and I'm an optimist. And so you ask me about the weather this summer, and I go on about, fantastic. You know, it was sunny. I remember all the sailing and swimming. It was great. And then someone points out it was the worst summer on record. But it doesn't matter because my experience is it was great. And so that's where the genetics comes in, in genetic influences on what makes me an optimist and what makes me actually have a very poor memory for things like that. I just remember them very subjectively. And I remember the, the summer being wonderful weather-wise. The second way in which genetics can enter in is even weirder in a way, and that is you can control the weather. If, you're, if you have seasonal affective disorder, you would not want to be in England today. It's a cold, right. rainy, windy day. You should move to Israel because you tell me it's beautifully warm and sunny. And so in right. a way, then we are changing our weather. And I know people who do this, you know, they, they say, I can't put up with this rotten weather anymore. It just makes me depressed. And so you can change your weather, objectively even. But I think where right. most of the genetic uh, influence comes in is through experience. And that's perceptions. And so and then I hear people say, well, it's just perception. But actually, I think perception is the way our environments are experienced. It doesn't matter that this last summer was a terrible summer, according to the weather records. What matters for me and my experience and my well-being and depression is that I saw it and I remember it as a wonderful summer. Absolutely. So, so given the power of DNA and its very long reach, where is there room for free will? Well, <coughs> excuse me, that's, uh, sorry. I don't ask easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm coughing because I just took a drink of water that went down the wrong way. I'm not coughing because I'm, I'm choking at the topic of free will, although I might. <laughs> I mean, yes. it's, it's a very difficult topic. I mean, the first thing to emphasize is this whispers and nudges. We're not talking about hardwired, deterministic uh, influences. We're, we're talking about these nudges and whispers. And um, so we're, we're not talking about determinism. And so there is room for free will. And uh, I was in philosophy. So I um, when I was at first in undergraduate and I, I got tired of it because or I got turned off to it because I found that um, I, I would always try to form testable hypotheses. You know, if this guy says X and this guy says Y, how do we know who's right or wrong? And I would always try to say, well, if this guy's right, then we ought to be able to show this or that. And I got stonewalled in philosophy because I I don't know if this is too cynical and there's people at the Van Leer who know a lot more about these things than I do. But my um, naive perspective on this is if you can test something, it's no longer philosophy. What is it? Psychology. And it was at that 
with that revelation that I just quit philosophy and went into psychology. So I kind of react against these notions. Um, if it's not empirical, it doesn't interest me very much. There's a lot of the biggest questions in the world about the meaning of life and all of that that aren't very empirical. So I'm, I'm just an empiricist, and I like to stay close to data and questions that are tractable. And I don't think free will is a tractable problem. And I always am wary of topics where people spend a lot of their time talking about what they mean. It isn't clear what free will is, really. But I think at the naive level, you take my genetic propensity to put on weight. I've got free will. I can just not eat so much. But the problem is it's not just not eat so much. You know, it's extremely difficult for me to do that. So um, I'm afraid I'm not an expert on that topic. And um, I, I kind of back away from it because I don't really see how we can approach approach it empirically. But I would just say at the most general level, um, genetic influence is just influence. It's not deterministic. And that means there's lots of room for free will, whatever you mean by it. Okay. Uh, that's, that's good. At least, at least there's a little room for free will some, somewhere in the gaps. Um, now, let, let's get back to the empirical work that you're you have been doing and and um, it, it, compared to our colleagues in psychology, uh, well, let me put it a, a more tactful way. The credibility of psychological research took a very big hit a few years ago uh, when a paper was published in Science uh, that reported that more than half of 100 studies in psychological journals failed to replicate. And it's, it's not just a psychology problem. There's failure to replicate in many fields, medicine, other scientific areas. Uh, but your big five findings have been replicated many times, so they can be trusted. What are those findings? Good. Well, I'm glad you raised that issue. I don't think it's gotten the public attention, this replication crisis. It's really a big deal. I mean, it started in 2005 with this wonderful epidemiologist, um, John Ioannidis, who wrote a paper with this amazing title, Why Most Research Findings Are False. And he yes. showed, and this was in the medical world, dealing with drug trials, you know, where people's lives depend on this. And on average, like half of these classic studies published in the biggest journals don't replicate. So... You know, this is really a huge issue. My colleague um, at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, where I work, Stuart Ritchie, um, just had a, a book come out on the replication crisis called um, Science uh, Fictions, which is kind of a great title. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of work being done on this. and it's. But when this stuff started happening in the last decade or so, where you know, psychologists, medical researchers, everybody's very concerned about this issue. And there's a huge amount we could say about how it happens, how we fix it. But I'll skip over all of that just to say, when I, I was thinking about it, I realized what I love so much about behavioral genetics is it does replicate. And so I wrote a paper saying, well, here are the five 
findings, it was actually 10, the book Blueprint talks about the big five of the top 10. And, um, and then I also, in that paper, uh, talk about why it is that these behavioral genetic results replicate, whereas so many other findings in psychology don't replicate. So I thought it was worth kind of blowing our horn a bit to say, look, we've got some really big findings, big findings in the sense of effect size. That is, you know, a lot of psychology findings are statistically significant, but they're not anything like socially significant in that they don't account for any variance. That is, they're tiny effects, even if they are real. So that's one. But in behavioral genetics, we're talking about very big effects. Explaining 50% of the differences between people saying it's due to inherited DNA differences is just so far off the scale of findings in, in psychology. You, you can't even plot it on a graph because most findings account for one, two, three percent of the variance. So, so behavioral genetics findings are big, the ones I'm going to describe in just a second. And they're big in the sense of effect size, but they're also big in terms of at a conceptual level. I mean, they, the nature of nurture, you know, it transforms our way of thinking about the environment. The environment isn't environmental. It also involves genetics. So nature of nurture is uh, one of those big findings. Um, and you'd only know that because we studied the environment in genetically sensitive designs. A second really big finding that can only be discovered in genetically sensitive designs is what we call non-shared environment. So this is a big topic. I won't be able to explain it all here, but the chapter is called Why Children in the Same Family Are So Different. Environmental theories that think that all that you are, your personality, psychopathology, mental abilities, all that you are is due to nurture your family environment. They have a tough time explaining why two kids in the same family are so different. Because they grew up in the same family. They have the same parents. Now, genetics has no problem with that. In fact, genetics predicts that children in a family will be different as well as similar because they share 50%, they're 50% similar genetically, but that means they're 50% different genetically. So if a trait is influenced by genetic factors, you have to predict that kids in a family are different, and indeed they are. So this issue of non-shared environment, I think, hasn't really filtered through yet. Um, uh, uh, um, Harris, I've forgotten her first name now. Why is that? Judith, Judith, Judith yeah. Rich Harris. She wrote a wonderful yeah. book called The Nurture Assumption, which um, was a popular account of what we were finding back in the 80s and early 90s, about non-shared, what we call non-shared environment, the idea that the environment's important, but whatever it is, it's not due to these systematic effects of the family environment, nurture, which we always assumed was the way the environment worked. So her book was wonderful. It created a big stir when it came out, and but it, it, it again seems to be forgotten more. And so I'm really keen to point out that for psychopathology especially, the environment's important, heritabilities maybe 50% on average, but that means 50% of the differences between people is not due to genetics. It's due to the environment, 
but the environment is not the systematic shared environment. Um, so we could talk some more about that. But after 30 years of trying to find out what these environmental influences are, I've come to conclude in the book, and this is probably the most controversial aspect of the book, that these environmental influences, while very important, are not systematic. They're more idiosyncratic, stochastic, in a word, chance. So that's why I began by talking about one of the chance events that really changed my life in the sense of being a tipping point was going to graduate school at Texas and happening to enroll in a course that included a, a classes in behavioral genetics. So that's non-shared environment. So first topic was nature of nurture. Second was non-shared environment. The third that often interests people is that when heritability changes in development, now heritability is a statistic that describes the extent to which inherited DNA differences account for differences that we observe. That's heritability. So it's just a descriptive statistic, but it can change in development. It, it could, most people would think if you ask them, it would decrease and they would say, why? It's because of Shakespeare's slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, things happen during life and people think that genetics is going full tilt at the moment of conception. Therefore, if uh, genetic influences should become less important as you go through life, accumulating these different experiences and environmental, environmental events. So what's interesting is that the results suggest the opposite. That is, when heritability changes for a trait during development, it increases, not decreases. And the most striking example is general learning ability or general cognitive ability, or if it isn't um, a red flag word in your, for your audience, intelligence. It in, heritability of intelligence increases dramatically during the lifespan from, say, 20% in infancy, 40% in childhood, 60% in middle adulthood, and some studies suggest 80% later in life. And so in psychology, it's very useful to pay special attention to results like that, that go against maybe common sense, what we thought was always important. And um, the question then is, why does heritability of intelligence increase when you go through life? And I think it has to do with the nature of nurture. That is, genes don't, if you put DNA on the table, it doesn't do anything. It needs a cellular environment, an organismic environment, and an and an uh, environment out there in the world in order to do its thing, to have its effect. And I think in terms of these whispers and nudges, genetics nudges people to select and create environments that are correlated with their genetic propensities. So if you've, if you've seen mathematically or gifted children, you, you really see this. Musically gifted kids, I think it would be hard to stop them from becoming musically skilled because they just love it. And they can, you don't need to give them the world's best teachers. They can hang out with people who also like music. With Spotify, they can listen to any music they want. They can create their environment that's correlated with their genetic propensities. And another example along those lines that interests me is um, your listeners might be surprised to hear that one of the most heritable cognitive traits is what do you think? 
And the answer is vocabulary. And people say, how can vocabulary be heritable? You know, you don't inherit words, but it's just the point that the genetic influence comes in terms of having us select more verbal environments. And I have a great example with my six grandchildren. One of them just loves words and the nuances of words. She'd always ask, well, but why that word rather than this word? And um, several of my other grandchildren would say, whatever, you know, (laughs) you know what I mean. It doesn't matter. Well, who's going to develop the better vocabulary? And so it, it isn't innate. It's not wired into their head. It just gives them, um, I think, appetites as much as aptitudes. You know, the, the, the one granddaughter who's just totally verbally fluent and has a super high vocabulary, she just loves words and she just wants to know about the precise meanings of words. I don't think her brain's wired particularly differently. I do think, increasingly, I think for all these sort of aptitudes, it's appetites as much as sort of hardwired aptitude. So that's, oh, that's, so I, I can go faster for these other ones. So we're at three now, nature, okay. nurture, yeah. non-shared environment, and then heritability increases as time goes by, which has a nice um, implication, I think, for us as we get older. People often say that uh, the older they get, the more they seem like their parents. <laughs> and right. I know at my cost, that seems to be true, really. I mean, I love my parents dearly, but it's odd that some of the things you see are the things you didn't like about your parents and you start seeing them in yourself. So I, I won't go into that. It gets a little too personal, but, <laughs> okay. but, but it is very common to hear people say, Oh my God, I'm turning into my father, mother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah people do say it yeah. like that with dismay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, an, an, another, um, uh, the fourth of these five topics is a little bit more, esoteric and it's the idea we call it generalist genes and i'll just make the point generally that you might think there's genetic effects on alcoholism and depression and um, all sorts of psychopathology but it isn't that there's one set of genes that affects one disorder and another set of genes that affects the other to a large extent we've learned in the last few years really that genetic effects are general. The same genes affect many different aspects of psychopathology. So one of the hot topics in psychiatry these days is what we call P, the little letter P, which stands for general psychopathology. And it's focused on the idea that there's a general uh, propensity towards mental illness, but it isn't so specific. And it seems the environment's more important in determining the way that genetic liability to psychopathology comes out. So that's the notion of um, generalist genes. We first saw it in cognitive abilities, and that's where the little p comes from. In, In cognitive abilities, we call it little g, which is general cognitive ability. And that's where a lot of the genetic action is in general learning ability. And, um, uh, well, anyway, we could go on and on about that as well. And so now I've got to remember. These are all revolutionary. Let's see, you've got four out of five. Um, Remind me what the fifth one is. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, (laughs) But four four are good because they are revolutionary. 
the idea that genetic influences become more important as we grow older is counterintuitive. It's just absolutely counterintuitive, although uh, people who work in gerontology often observe that people become, if they if they get information about what they were like earlier in life, that they become a more refined sense of themselves. People become more themselves as they age. Exactly so right. That, yes. I think that's so great. Yeah. And you know, Skinner, B.F. Skinner, who's this noted environmentalist, he, when he uh, was very much older, I think in his 80s, he wrote a book on age, old age or aging, in which he said, the older I get, the more I become who I am, which right. I think is an amazing admission for, uh, maybe he thought of it all as environmentally um, uh, in, instigated, but um, I think that's the way to think about genetics is that we become more of ourselves. And you see it, you know, my, my parents died in the last couple of years at the age of 96 and 97. And you really see it uh, in if you hang around with very much older people. I think in part, I've, I'm beginning to feel this myself. When you get older, you say, I don't care. I mean, this is the way I am. If I don't like going to cocktail parties, I'm not going to cocktail parties, you know? And so... Oh, yes. Aging is very liberating. It is. Absolutely. Is it? Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you think <laughs> so, too. Yeah. Good. I did think of what the fifth topic was, just to say... Uh, briefly, it is important. The abnormal is normal. That's the bumper sticker for this. And what we've learned from genetics is, I have an article called, There Are No Common Disorders. There Are Only Quantitative Dimensions. From a genetic point of view, it's clear that there's no etiologically distinct disorders. So we make such a big deal about diagnosing schizophrenia or autism, but actually we're dealing with a normal quantitative distribution. And that has a lot of implications. I mean, first of all, um, it means we all have lots of genes, say for schizophrenia. It's quantitative. The more of them you have, the more likely you are to be extreme in terms of psychotic behavior. But there is no cut point where you become schizophrenic. And I think that's really important because, again, it suggests tolerance. It isn't a matter of us, normal people, versus those schizophrenics. We all share that continuum of liability. And um, so this is really uh, revolutionizing, I think, medicine as well as um, psychiatry, the idea that we're dealing with continua rather than dichotomies. It also simplifies the, the thinking in the field uh, of psychopathology, because if you look at the DSM, the Psychiatric Diagnostic Bible, it's a big fat book with lots and lots of detail, and uh, it appears to separate every psychiatric diagnostic label with a checklist of, uh, of symptoms. Uh, but it turns out uh, that there are only three genetic dimensions, and they influence psychopathology. Do you want to tell us about them? Yeah. Well, I think this is the, the this topic of P that I mentioned before, that there's yes. this general psychopathology. And under that, most psychiatric problems, especially the childhood and adolescent ones, which I study the most, fall into two areas they call externalizing and internalizing. Externalizing are things like attention deficit, deficit disorder, um, disruptive behavior. It's the external stuff where the kid's creating problems. Whereas internalizing, as it suggests, is more internal to things like depression 
and anxiety. And that's the way the genetics works out as well. There's a lot of genetic influences, and this is at the DNA level now, that operate across all psychopathology and primarily are affecting this P, little p, general psychopathology. Then there are also some genes that are more, that they have more influence over externalizing problems than internalizing problems. So this structure that we the psychiatrists have come to for psychiatric disorders, phenotypically, that is in terms of just measured symptoms, is also the same structure we find genetically, suggesting that it's the genetics that's driving this three-factor structure. And the dynamics of how it influences is also something that your research uh, challenged the basic assumptions about. Um, uh, you uh, had a study that showed that children who are genetically inclined to be depressed or antisocial elicited more negativity from their parents, which is counter to more the more intuitive idea that if parents act more negatively or more critical and punishing toward one child than toward another, that tends to lead them to become depressed or antisocial. Explain, elaborate on that. It's hard to understand if you haven't thought about things backwards. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. no, exactly right. That's such a great point. You're hitting all the key topics. I mean, I I would like listeners to know, I haven't fed you these questions, but they they work so perfectly (laughs) in terms of explaining the book. And this is an extension of that nature of nurture topic I talked about before, where you can't assume that correlations between parenting and children's outcomes say in this case, negativity of parents and their children's, say, antisocial or depressive symptoms, you can't assume that's caused environmentally. It's reasonable to think so, and it's hard, as you're saying, it's almost hard not to think that way. But genetics could mediate that relationship because parents and children are 50% similar genetically. But increasingly, from longitudinal studies where we study families year after year, we're able to show that to a large extent, the correlation is going the other way. Parents are responding to genetic differences in their children. And if you think about it, it does make sense, you know, that if you have a kid who's hitting adolescent and they're they're just kind of a nasty piece of work, you know, it's temporary maybe, we hope, but they're antisocial and, you know, monosyllabic and they're not fun to be around. Well, as a human being who happens to be a parent, you're bound to respond to that. I mean, you're not a robot where you're just going to say, oh, darling, isn't that lovely? You know, when the kid is giving you the finger or swearing or, you know, being a nasty piece of work. So, I think it's quite reasonable to think that these correlations actually go the other way from the child to the parent. And in a way, you could say that's kind of good parenting in a way to respond to the children. But in the case of psychopathology, like negativity that I think parents can't help but feel and maybe express is reflecting differences in the children. It's good to know about that because maybe you can break that cycle a bit, because you would think that's kind of a vicious cycle in the sense that the more negative the parent comes, becomes the worse the kid becomes. 
and you know it's just people interacting but you can't help but spiral down into um, a worsening situation so i think it's useful for parents to recognize that um, to some extent i think to a large extent we're responding to our children and it, rather than causing the differences that we observe and in fact that's one of the basic messages i think for parents I would, I, there's one four-page section of Blueprint that's gotten more attention than any other, and that's on parenting. And it basically says that um, parents matter, but they don't make a difference. That is, parents matter. Obviously, they provide the psychological and physiological ingredients for psychological development. But the idea of nurture from Judith Rich Harris, the idea that it's nurture, it's the systematic differences in the parenting that's causing the children to develop the way they are is really misleading um, because genetics is the major systematic influence in development. The environment's important, but it's largely chance. It's non-systematic. And what that means is parents don't control that influence. And so I was going to follow this up with a book on parenting because there are literally thousands of books on parenting, but try to find one that even mentions genetics. Whereas I think genetics is the most important fact for parents to know about parenting. They don't have nearly as much control as they think. And this is important because 1% of the population, for example, is diagnosed as schizophrenic. I get um, uh, emails at least every couple of weeks from parents who are saying, you know, I've done the best I can for my kids and yet they've gone off the rail in adolescence, in drugs or whatever. Or worse, is you don't become schizophrenic, or you're not diagnosed until late, late teens or early 20s. And then you would have been told in the old days that that was caused by what you did in the first few years of life, which is very wicked. But if you think you're in t that children are blobs of clay you mold to be the way you want them to be, you're going to be very, um, it's going to be difficult, this process of development, because you don't have much control. And you can take credit for the good things that happen. But what about when things go really wrong? You know, if you think you're totally responsible for the way your child turned out, you're going to, it's a world of hurt for you. And it's wrong. It just isn't the case. So instead, I think parents ought to recognize there are genetic differences. And they ought to do things for their kids because they love them and they want to make nice life nice for them. You know, you don't do things for your spouse because you want to make them a better person. You do things right. for them because you love them and you want it to be nice for them. And I think that relationship is important with our kids as well, because in fact, we don't have much control about the way they turn out. So why not instead recognize genetic differences, find out what they like to do as well as what they're good at, because those two things are highly correlated. And you just help them do those things. Don't make them do it. Don't make the mistake I did where I just thought um, cultured kids ought to be able to read music and play piano. And, you know, it ended up kind of ruining my relationship with one of my sons during adolescence because, you know, he, like me, is ornery. And if I really said you're going to do this, he's going to say, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> and it got to be, you know, a major tension. And he won in the yeah. end. You know, I had to say, right, what on what grounds do I say he's got to learn to sight read music? 
It'd be as dumb as saying he ought to be um, a hundred yard sprinter or a marathon runner if he doesn't have the body for it or the interest in it. And you know, he's a bright boy, but he's bright enough to realize that his friends with no musical training at all are composing music. And he, he knew he wasn't very good at it. And he wasn't very interested in it. And it was dumb of me to insist that he do that. Because, you, you know, Erickson, who died recently, has this 10,000-hour thing that Malcolm Gladwell popularized. And it's true that with, with a lot of training, anybody can get very good at music. But you got to spend all that time doing it. And there aren't that many 10,000 hours in life. So I think it's better to, to go with the genetic flow and don't swim upstream. You know, figure out what you like to do, what you're good at, and try to help your children, as well as yourself, do that. Don't go with some preordained notion of what your child ought to be. Well, I hope you do write that book, because uh, parents are saddled not only with a lot of responsibility, of course, they're responsible for the health, safety, and well-being of uh, little dependent creatures, but, uh, but they have enormous anxiety and guilt. So if you write a book that alleviates some of that, that would be a great contribution. Uh, uh, on, a, on a different but related topic, um, some researchers in the field of behavioral genetics suggest that genetic factors are involved in our political and religious attitudes as well. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, that's tough to take. Um, but again, you can't find any measure in psychology that, is, that does not show genetic influence. And your attitudes are an important part of who you are. And probably genetic influence is fed from our personality and from uh, other places as well, psychologically, including cognitive abilities. So in fact, you know, the studies are quite clear in showing genetic influence on attitudes and even religiosity, that is the extent to which you say, uh, believe in a, a God, for example, or in an afterlife. Interestingly, the w one thing that doesn't show much, much genetic influence at all is your religious affiliation. That's obviously much more a function of your family rearing. But how religious you are and how you express that does show genetic influence. So, and it's um, it's the whole area though of um, research called sociogenomics, where sociologists and and even economists, econogenomics, uh, are really getting into this at uh, um, this sort of level of uh, your your economic behavior and in social political attitudes as well. So it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one to swallow, but um, the evidence is pretty clear that there is some genetic influence, perhaps maybe 30-40%. It's at the lower end of genetic influence. But as I say, in psychology, that's still a huge effect. Well, it, finally, you've given us the takeaway message for parents what is the takeaway message of your work for adults more generally? Um, I would say stay tuned for the DNA revolution. 27 million people have paid to have their 
genome sequenced. So this is the 3 billion base pairs of DNA, and there's companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and people are paying to have their genetic testing done. And it tells you about single gene disorders. It tells you about ancestry, but it also tells you about some of these psychological traits or neurodegenerative traits. Like if you do 23andMe or one of these companies, you would you could find out you're in the unlucky 1% of the population that has a 60% risk of having Alzheimer's by the time you're 80. And that's an astronomical risk. I mean, the risk at base for everybody is 10% or so, but 60%, a six-fold greater risk, is really a huge risk. So mm. there's a lot you get out of that. And what's the big change now is to move towards these common traits in complex disorders that are influenced by many genes of small effect. And you put those together and create a polygenic score. And this is the big thing now. And of the, uh, there's at least 50 companies that will provide genetic information about psychiatric and psychological traits, as well as all the other lifestyle, sports, you know, nutrition. So this is really a big thing. And the biggest thing of all that's just happening, especially in China, for reasons I don't understand, is DNA testing for children. So parents in China, some like, they say this next year, 5 million parents are going to have their infants tested for DNA. And you can see where this raises all sorts of other issues. Yeah, but very much. The, the general idea, though, and the reason why countries like with national health systems like the UK, they're going to provide this genetic testing free to everybody who wants it. Because all of medicine is moving away from a model where you wait till someone has a heart attack and then you try to fix it. You can now predict with DNA whether someone's at increased risk for having a heart attack. Because there are many genes involved and heritability is maybe 50, 60%, it's not 100%, it means it'll never be perfectly predictive. But as predictive risks go, it's really high and medicine is moving towards prevention and precision medicine, they call it, where you don't just give everybody the same drugs, you, you prescribe medicine on the basis of, say, genetics in this case. So to predict, to prevent, you have to predict, and DNA is a unique predictor because, and I don't think we've mentioned this, DNA doesn't change during your life. So you can predict at birth your risk for having a severe heart attack later in life, just as well as you can predict from later in life because your DNA doesn't change. So this is really happening in medicine. And you know, there's a lot to be said for it. There's also the problems that lots of people raise, like labeling. If you knew you were going to have a heart attack, maybe, I don't know what you wouldn't, I don't know. People worry about the negative effects of labeling. Um, but I, I see, I'm a cheerleader, definitely. I think there's a lot of good that can come from this. If you think of alcoholism, we can't predict it too well yet with DNA. But if you knew you were at high genetic risk for alcoholism, it doesn't mean you're going to become an alcoholic, but it could mean that you would listen to the messages we all get about monitor your alcohol use, take a break from alcohol, realize alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs around. And you then would know that 
if you drink as much as your friends, they might not become alcoholic, but you have a much greater risk of becoming alcoholic. And the simple solution is if you don't drink alcohol and a lot of it over a long period of time, you're not going to become alcoholic. So I think there's an awful lot of positive messages that can come from this. But I guess uh, coming back to the bumper sticker, which I've now expanded into a small book, it just that people really ought to look towards the DNA revolution because that's going to transform psychology, psychiatry. It's already transforming research. All big research projects collect DNA now. And it's also going to transform uh, society and the way we understand ourselves. Well, Robert, you've given us a great deal to think about and to look forward to. Thank you so much for your important work and for talking with us today. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Bye-bye. <laughs>